This is the Fearless Agent Podcast, where you learn how to make way more money fast selling real estate with your host, the fearless agent himself, Bob Leffler. And good day to you. This is Bob right here at the Fearless Agent Podcast for real estate sales professionals just like you, where we explain why everything you've been taught by the entire real estate industry is wrong, and you will make lots more money in way, way less time by doing the exact opposite. So we have been talking. Ramon, how are you doing today? Not too bad Not yourself, too bad. sir. Fantastic. It's easier that way. Yes, indeed. Always have my trusty sidekick, Ramon, in the booth. As speaking we say. of wrong, mm-hmm. doing things wrong. So now we do, speaking of doing things wrong, we always start with the headlines of the day. Yes, those are often wrong <laughs> in the end. <laughs> That's right. Now we have the headlines of the day. You know they're real, they're printed on paper. There it is. That's how you know. That's good stuff. Zoom calls. Now, get this. Zoom calls for committee meetings uh, have been found to be more productive than in-person committee meetings. You know why? Why is that? I think it's because uh, people aren't fighting over the donuts. Or the bad coffee. That's my own opinion. That's right. (laughs) There is no bad coffee. There's only Folgers Folgers coffee. I think I'll have some now. Oh. Oh. Heavenly. We it's got heavenly. that out of the way. So we have been talking uh, last week and previous weeks, we've been talking all about working with investors because people are into it. People go to these investor seminars and stuff. So uh, I'm going to do a little investor math, okay? Now, oh. when we talk about math. Oh, <laughs> man. I'm hitting all the sound effects <laughs> early on this one. Here's investor math. Math, math is so much fun, so much fun for Oh, yeah. oh man. Okay. So, I if you if you can folks listening at home jot this down. <laughs> when you're doing your investor math, today's price the price at which the house your house would sell for today minus the price you paid, the purchase price including the improvements you made would equal the appreciation amount. Then you would take the appreciation amount divided by the years owned, and that would equal the annual appreciation amount. Then you would take the annual appreciation amount divided by the initial down payment and the cost of improvements, and that would equal your annual rate of return. Now, There are a lot of myths out there in investing in real estate. So one of them is positive cash flow a good thing. Actually, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's just a thing. If you have a lot of positive cash flow, it usually means you have a lot of equity. And that could be an indicator of low rate of return. So part of the problems that uh, we encounter as real estate professionals is there's a lot of bad information out there that your customers, investors, are um, falling prey to. They hear these things at all these investor seminars and stuff, and most of them are about how how great it is to have positive cash flow. Usually, um, it would be an indicator of a low-performing, uh, low-rate-of-return property. 
and you tend to see that in, um, let's say, uh, what do we call now? I can't think of the word. What do, what do we have any music for when I can't think of a word? You know what? Not music, <laughs> but we do have. <laughs> that's, that's right. It's pretty darn close. That's, I'm having a Joe Biden moment there. That's fun. So um, the uh, multifamily. So multifamily properties, uh, commercial properties a lot of times, and uh, condos, stuff like that, where the appreciation is not high, then you tend to have a high positive cash flow. So here's here's what I would recommend to you working with normal, not super rich, not super wealthy, not Bill Gates, not Oprah, in normal everyday investors that are rich because they have to have money to invest. Um, if you put down enough money to have a positive cash, not to have positive cash flow, but a break-even cash flow, uh, that's that's kind of where you would want to be. So I just want to tie up some loose ends that we've been talking about investors. So here's one: Should I turn my personal residence into a rental? And the answer is no, in almost every case. So here's why: First of all, your so write down three categories of properties. Personal residence, this would be for residential. Your personal residence. Then there's the rental property. And then there's vacation property, second homes. Those three are taxed differently. And if you want to have problems with the IRS, uh, commingle those. So you can avoid having problems with the IRS by not turning your – so let's – Let's say you've owned your house for, oh, 20 years and it has doubled in value. So let's say you bought a house for 100000 and now it would sell for two hundred or th- let's say 300000 So you've owned it for 20 years. It's gone from 100000 to 300000 When you're calculating the uh, capital gains tax, they're going to take the amount that you paid for the property or the amount – of the value of the property when you turned it into service as a rental for your basis, whichever is lower. So that would be a rule. Uh, the IRS is not your friend, Ramon. Did you know that? Oh, I do. Yeah, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So the uh, the idea is you would have a $200,000 gain in that situation that would be taxable. Now, if you sold your $300,000 personal residence, you could keep all that money tax-free and then go buy another house or, or do whatever you want with it. If you turn it into a rental, then it would you would be taxed, not on that day, but at some point on that $200,000 and you would be just flushing money down the toilet that is the IRS. So rule of thumb you should never turn your personal residence into a rental unless it has not gone up in value significantly uh, or if it has gone down in value. The other reason not to turn your personal residence into a rental is we went through all the – in a past episode, we went through all the things that would make your property a good rental property. It has to be the right type of property equals single-family house. It has to be in the right neighborhood, you know, six or eight miles from downtown on the good side of town. Uh, it has to have the right features, you know, three bedrooms minimum, two bathrooms minimum, uh, not on a corner, not backing up to something weird, not on a busy street, not across from a school, homogenous. 
and it would be unlikely that somebody's personal residence that they were thinking of turning into a rental would fit all those criteria and not have gone up in value. So when you're, let's say, cold calling or you're prospecting and somebody says, uh, no, I'm thinking about buying a house, but I'm going to rent mine out, uh, it's just good for you to know that that is the one that's the single worst mistake, most expensive mistake most people will ever make in real estate that can be literally financially devastating. So if you can protect them from that, that would be a good thing. Now, the other uh, common thing people do is fix and flip, okay? So let's just go through a typical fix and flip experience so you can you folks can write this down. So I purchase a house. Let's say I purchase a house. Let's say you purchase a house and you pay 100,000, okay? We're just using round numbers. These aren't real numbers. Ramon, these numbers are fake. I'm not I've seen some $100,000 homes. They're That's right. Well, Free meth Ramon lab comes is with in a it. bad neighborhood. He's, he's I don't know what he's doing over there. He's on the wrong side of the tracks. So let's say you fix it up and you invest 20000 into it. So you've got one hundred k to start, twenty k to add in, and then you end up selling it for 150000 You'd have a taxable gain of 30000 Okay. Now, that's a fairly common – I would say that's probably the average – successful fix-and-flip experience. So my question to – first of all, when you sell it for 150, you have a taxable gain of 30000 Because you're a real estate investor, you're in the highest tax bracket, which means 50 percent when you consider state and federal and all that. So 50 percent of the 30000 goes to the IRS and then you're left with fifteen. So now – the question is, what are you going to do with the 15? And the person would usually say, I'm going to invest it in another house. And then I would say, so real estate. And they'd say, yes, real estate. And I'd say, well, you just had it in real estate. You just had it in real estate. And if you had rented that house out and not sold it, you would have not paid the 15000 to the IRS and your state and local governments, and you could have had a much higher rate of return. So here's the way it works. Let's say some guy buys a house for 100000 He puts 20000 into it, fixing it up. He sells it for 150000 to you. You're the investor. You buy the house that is just freshly fixed up, and you pay 150000 for it. You put $40,000 down because that's going to give you a break-even cash flow, okay? So write down purchase, invest, $150,000 house. Your total investment is 40000 because that would give you a break-even cash flow, let's say, okay? So in 15 years, is it possible that that house would both have doubled in value and gone to 300000 and it would be paid off. Is that possible? It's likely, actually. So you've paid it off. It's worth 300000 And now you do a 1031 tax-free exchange. 
you take the 300,000, you divide it by three, and you use that as the down payment, three $100,000 down payments on with no money out of pocket. Remember, this is, this is cash you had in a house. And you buy three more houses just like that. So now you own three $300,000 houses. Now, your total investment, again, was only 40000 The tenant has been paying all the expenses, all the fix-ups, all the maintenance, all the rent, all that stuff. They paid off your loan for you. Fifteen years later, it's doubled again in value, and you have three $600,000 houses that are paid off. You now have $1.8 million, and you have paid no taxes. So you turned $40,000 into $1.8 million over a 30-year period. Now, for you to do that and make that same $1.8 million doing fix and flips, you'd have to do 120 fix and flips the way we did that first one where you have 15000 after taxes. Or you'd have to do 60 fix and flips where you'd add 30, you'd have to do twice as good on 60, or you'd have to do 30 where you did uh, four times as good to equal the same 1.8 million. And you can't even blow it even one time. So most of the stories I hear from real estate professionals, these are realtors who should have known better, is they say, I lost all my money doing fix and flips. I think I told a story about the guy who... uh, called me up and he said, uh, yeah, me and my brother uh, used to do fix and flips and we were really good at it. And I said, uh, how much money did you lose? And he said, we lost $3 million. Now, how did I know he lost money? Because he said, we used to do it <laughs> and, we, and we were really good at it. Now, when he was, said he's really good at it, he didn't mean we were so good at it we lost $3 million. The market changed all of a sudden. He didn't see it coming through no fault of his own except that he was doing the exact wrong thing. What he was good at is fixing them up. He th- he, in other words, he thought he was a good decorator. Well, all the decorating in the world isn't going to fix your problems when the market changes. So if he had just kept all the properties that he had bought, he would have lost no money. The market could have changed. The rents never plummet. They never went way down uh, in the worst market ever. The rents didn't go way down. So uh, – and by the way, here's a little uh, – another tip for you all. What is it that determines the, the rents? It usually is – the interest rates. As rent interest rates go up on mortgage rates, usually rents go up. So they're they're tied to that more closely than any other thing. Now the other the other thing that is uh uh important is uh LLCs. So if you are a if you own a rental property and you own it in an LLC in our little uh, buy and hold Scenario. Let's say I'm going to buy the property that we purchased for 150 from the fix and flip guy who fixed it up. So we pay 150,000. We put that into an LLC, 
And the reason we do that is to protect, limit our liability from lawsuits and stuff like that. There may be some minor tax advantages to that, although I'm not 100% convinced of that. So then uh, it goes up in value. It doubles in value. And 15 years later, we're going to sell it and do a 1031 tax-free exchange. When we go to do that tax-free exchange, we're going to also get mortgages on the three that we're exchanging for. Well, an LLC is a corporation, and a corporation can't get a mortgage. The seller has to also be the buyer uh, to be, for it to be a tax-free exchange. You have to have the same buyer and seller. So in order for you to get a loan, you can't own it as an LLC. So you have to, before you sell it, take it out of the LLC, sell it as yourself, then buy the three, can, you know, qualify for the mortgages, get the mortgages on those, and then put them after you own them back into the LLC. So when somebody somebody is a prospect of yours or a seller of yours or a uh, investor of yours, just remember that if they own them in an LLC, they're going to have to take those out of the LLC before they sell them and do their tax-free exchange. So the other thing that you can, you can do um, – And by the way, if any of the stuff that we talk about here on the big uh, Fearless Agent podcast show, if any of it makes sense to you and you happen to be earning less selling real estate than you wish you were and you are open to the idea of having some help. Also, if you happen to be a company owner, you own your own real estate company and you either do have agents uh, but you're recruiting fewer producing agents than you wish you were, and you're open to the idea of having some help with that. If you would like to learn more about either of those things, you can call me anytime at 480-385-8810. If you would like to have a fearless agent event for your company, or you're working for a company and you think they might want to have a fearless agent event, go to fearless agent. Um, and .com and go to the speaking page and there's a little uh, excerpt from a two-day event that we do. Uh, you could watch that. That would kind of give you a sense of what that would be like. And by the way, uh, I love talking to realtors. Don't ever think you're bothering me. Please don't email me or text to me only because those are bad habits in sales and we like to practice what we preach. Always call me at 480-385-8810. If you can't afford coaching, but you wish you could, please visit fearlessagent.com. Watch our webinar, the free webinar, 45 minutes. Take lots of notes. Go to the, uh, again, that speaking page. That's a good video for you to watch. And my guarantee to you is that those free videos would be way, way better coaching for free than you would pay any other coach in America any amount of money for. And if you ever have a question, you can always feel free to call me because we want to help you to make you rich enough to afford fearless agent coaching when you're ready or if you're ready. So again, call me anytime, 480-385-8810. So so I think we're kind of done talking about investors. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about marketing. Um, You know, uh, if you're great at first of all, when it comes to marketing, uh, at Fearless Agent, we had a rejected slogan. Do you know what the rejected slogan was, Ramon? I, I do not. It was expect the unexpected. 
it makes the unexpected expected. That was a rejected slogan. I can understand why. Yeah. I have some other rejected slogans. You want to hear some of your rejected slogans? Uh, Maybe. Hooked on phonics. It worked for me. Yeah. Their original slogan was, we explain why phonics isn't spelled the way it sounds. (laughs) The first English dictionary in 1604, it had a slogan. You know what it was? No. Where do you think we got the words? That was the slogan. <laughs> Samsonite, Samsonite, the luggage company, yeah. they have a slogan. It was called, put your suits in our garment bags, put your garments in our suitcases. Again, these are the rejected, yeah, those these are, are the rejected slogans. Yeah, that doesn't flow off the tongue, shall we say. Rolex, do you know Rolex? <laughs> do you have a Rolex? Uh, three, they're not real. Their but. rejected slogan was, our third hand is our second hand. <laughs> That's good. Now that I like. I'm remembering that one. Monster.com. Are you familiar oh, with Monster.com? I've heard of them. Yes, I may need that after uh, I'm done with this. If jobs are so great, why do you have to pay people to do them? That was their... Oh, that's okay. good. That's good. Dyson. <laughs> Dyson, the vacuum cleaner. He's, he's got more people. We suck. That was their that rejected... Was... <laughs> okay. All right, I got one more. You want to hear one more? I Might as well. Motel 6. Mm-hmm. We'll leave the light on for you. Because we're in a sketchy neighborhood. That's true. That's it. That's it. Okay, that's enough of that. So marketing, uh, the secret to marketing is this. If you're going to do it, and I will say this, uh, most all coaches in real estate talk about marketing only. We literally never talk about it. But if you're going to do it, uh, I recommend that you do it correctly and uh, so here's, here's some rules of thumb. So number one is be consistent. So one of, the, one of the things I've noticed in marketing is you get into real estate, they go, they said, Bob, you need to have a farm area, okay? Not barnyard animals, not chickens and horses. It was, it was a little area that you would focus on, you know. So I, 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 I said, okay, yeah, okay, that sounds good. So and then you're going to uh, now, nobody said to call these people. I was supposed to uh, leave stuff, door hangers. I was supposed to do postcards. I was supposed to do newsletters. I was supposed to do all this stuff. So, but the main thing is I noticed that people would say, I'm going to um, I'm market to this farm area here. And then they do it for three months. And then they say, I'm not getting any results. So they say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try marketing to this area over here instead. And they say, oh, that doesn't work after about three months. And they go, I think I'm going to I think I'm going to focus on luxury. And then they they do a luxury neighborhood for about three months. They get no results. And then they think, I think buyers, I think buyers are the way to go. Well, this is the career path to the failed agent in real estate. This is pretty much the way all real estate agents who fail, they kind of go through some some system like that. So if you're going to market and I don't recommend that you do, but if you're going to do it, be consistent and stick with it. So pick a type of person, a niche, an area, something, and focus on that and be consistent. And, and then the other thing is, um, you know, if you, if you are – how often are you going to do it? Well, one of the things I learned, there was a company uh, – now I can't think of the name of the company. How old am I again? Am I losing it? Is it – no, that's you've a, got it. That's it. I've got, got it. still got it. You got so something. there was a company that I learned how to do my marketing from, 
and they said, uh, Bob, you're sending out a, you know, I was sending out, let's say, a thousand uh, pieces of mail a month to an area, to a farm area. Well, instead of doing it once a month, do it three times a month to a smaller group of people and you will have better results. And that did improve the results. Now, if I look back and I say, if I took all the money that I invested in in marketing, sending postcards, uh, would I do it again? Uh, the answer is no. But I do know this, that I had a better result when I did it to fewer houses more often. And then the other question is what to send. So I remember one day I was talking to a, uh, a guy who actually helped get me into real estate. And he was kind of a mentor of mine. And he was a guy I respected. And he said, uh, you know, I said, what do you think I should, I should send? He goes, let me, he goes, come out, come out front. He was, he had been out front working on his yard. He goes, come out front. And he shows me these door hangers sitting on, on his door. And they were from, you know, different people, carpet cleaners, maybe a political candidate, maybe, uh, you know, somebody, a landscaper. And they had left door hangers on his door that he still had hanging there. He goes, he goes, you know what? He goes, I cannot even throw these away without me getting the message. And, you know, that's important. If you if it's in an envelope, if it's a letter folded up in an envelope with a business card or something like that, at some point, that might not even get opened or looked at. But if it's a postcard or a door hanger, you could not, you literally could not throw it away without looking at it. And then the next thing is it should have an emotional appeal. So having it say, I have my CRS, I have my GRI, I don't have any M-O-N-E-Y, but I do have my CRS and my GRI and, and all these things, you know, letters after your name and, you know, I was the number one at this and the number one at that is not a emotional appeal. That's a logical appeal. It, in marketing, you want to have a mo- an emotional appeal. So you see the Hallmark card ad on TV where it makes you get teary-eyed. That's going to sell you on doing business with somebody. It could, doesn't. It doesn't have to be heartfelt uh, emotions. It could be funny also. Funny is an emotion. So like the Geico ads, that's an emotional appeal. It's not logical. Um, It's the caveman. It's the lizard. It's that kind of stuff. So that's funny. And then your photo is the brand. So I've I've had agents say to me, uh, I don't want to have my photo on the postcard or I don't want to have my photo in the marketing or on the ad. And I think, what are you going to do? Scare them when you show up? I mean, come on. So I remember one time I was at a uh, Floyd Wickman um, uh, kind of convention thing, class, group group thing in Vegas. And they had people go up. Now, this is so many years ago. They had an overhead projector. Do you have you ever seen? We could go to a museum and visit the yeah. overhead projector right next to the VCR. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So this lady. So they would have people go on. It was called the parade of techniques, and you could go up on stage and show your marketing idea or any kind of an idea. But people, a fair number of people, were showing their marketing ideas. So this lady who was. Arguably uh, not – she was, uh, let's say, grossly overweight, 
not beautiful, okay? And uh, so she had a postcard, and she had a close-up picture of her face on it, and it said her name, like, you know, Jane Doe, and it said, not just another pretty face was her, was her tagline, <laughs> which, which was great. And she was a very, you know, she's making fun of herself, and yeah. that's cool, and she, she was a very successful agent. But no matter what you look like, you need to have your photo because you're the brand. And then the other thing is you need a turnkey operation. So in other words, so for me, uh, I was sending out, uh, you know, probably a little over 5,000 postcards per month to, um, you know, a a lesser amount of people. And again, I would not do that if I had to do over again. And the fearless agents that I coach that make the most money, they do the least marketing and, and the ones that make the very most money do no marketing of any kind. But again, if you're going to do it, uh, have a turnkey system so that you don't have to touch it. And uh, so I would print out the labels that we would stick on these postcards and I would look through the labels to see if there were any duplicates. So I'm printing them from my database. So I've got all these people in my database. And if I notice there, oh, there's a space between their two letters in their first or last name where there shouldn't be, I can go back in my database and correct that. If there's duplicates, I could take them out. So I would just glance over those. So I would print the labels myself, and then I would just give them to my assistant, and she would uh, go to the post office. She would put all the stickers, the the labels on them. She would – the postage was already printed on it. You know, it was bulk mail. It was actually first class, but was a first – a bulk mail imprint. And uh, for some reason on postcards, first class is actually cheaper than bulk rate. Only the government could come up with that system, I think, right? Um, But if you just do those things uh, that way, you're going to have a much, much better. And in the the next upcoming episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the emotional appeal of your marketing And I want to thank all of you for tuning in today. Once again, we want to thank you for joining us. Again, if you are a company owner and you would like to have an event or you would like to recruit producing agents or if you're an agent and you would like to uh, earn more money, please go to fearlessagent.com. You can call me directly at 480-385-8810. Please do give us your five-star review of this podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you hear us. And until next week, do what we always do. Ramon, you know the three things we do. We have fun. We drink coffee. We drink coffee. That's four things. Now it's four things. We be humble. And then above all, be fearless. Thanks, gang. Oh,